uh, a uh, Frank and Ernest cartoon. And over on the left-hand side of the first uh, segment was a moving van. Uh, said Ernest and Frank's animal moving service. And uh, Frank says to Ernie, where to, Ernie? Ernie says, well, the uh, Puma goes to Yuma. The uh, Armadillo goes to Amarillo. The Boa goes to Alcoa. The Koala goes to Ocala. The Kangaroo goes to Kalamazoo. And Frank says, and the Impala? And uh, Ernie says, to Walla Walla. <laughs> and I've walked by that sign every day for the last few weeks, and I thought, yeah, we're sending our Impala to Walla Walla. Um, the analogy that comes to mind when I think of, of Ron Gonzalez is the one that uh, Paul himself uses when he describes pastors as under rowers. Most of the uh, translations say ministers, but that's uh, that really misses the, the point of the uh, metaphor. It's under rowers. It's a description of galley slaves that are down in the bottom of a Roman warship pulling on the sweeps. And that's what a pastor is supposed to be. He's not uh, up on the poop deck with his captain hat on and his epaulets on his shoulders calling all the shots. He's uh, down in the, in, the, in the hold, pulling on the sweeps, keeping his eye on the coxswain, who is the Lord. And that, that is, has always been, for me, an apt metaphor for Ron. He's, uh, he's been down in the belly of the ship, hidden away, just uh, quietly doing the ministry that God has, has called him to do. I, I think Ron has done about everything on this staff that there is to be done. He has worked with children. He has worked with singles. He's worked with college ministry. He uh, has been the director of our small group group ministries. And uh, in recent uh, years, he has been the shepherd of the Sunday evening group. And uh, he and Cherry have just done a, a wonderful job of quietly ministering to the Lord in ways that have been wonderfully supportive uh, for this church. And we are going to miss you guys tremendously. Now, if you would turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, what I think I should do, since so many of you were at the uh, the uh, conference last weekend, the family conference, is to back up a bit and reintroduce the particular text that we'll be talking about this morning because uh, one thought flows into the next. As I, as I mentioned last week, the, uh, Paul's letters are occasioned by many uh, events. This one was triggered by a disagreement between two individuals within the church. Uh, their names are Yodia and Syntyche. We know nothing about uh, the disagreement. We have no idea of its content. Paul doesn't tell us. He simply tells us that uh, these two uh, people within the church were, were vexed with each other. They couldn't get along. They they rubbed each other the wrong way. They, they couldn't agree. So Paul says in chapter 4, I appeal to Iodia, I appeal to Syntyche, that you agree in the Lord. And he says, I, I ask you, uh, true yoke fellow, I, I think it was probably Epaphroditus who is a scribe, who was seated next to Paul as he transcribed this uh, letter. I appeal to you, yoke fellow, to uh, help these women in this, uh, in this disagreement. Now, you have to understand these letters were read aloud to the church. 
and uh, you really miss the impact of that statement unless unless you uh, understand what actually what happened. The elders of the church read these letters aloud to the congregation as they gathered, and you can imagine how Yodi and Syndicate felt when when the reader came to the end of the book and he said, "I." I admonish Iodia, I appeal to Syntyche that you agree. It must have been some couple of red faces in, in the room. Paul was very, uh, very direct. This was his concern. And there's a reason for it, as I said. It's because our witness to the world really is based upon our, our agreement, our, our ability as a church to love each other, to set aside our, our disagreements, the little misunderstandings that we have, uh, the things that nettle us and vex us and, and love each other and care for each other. So important. Uh, we, we vitiate, we neutralize uh, our message to the world when we just uh, cannot uh, get along. We've got to pull together. That's, that's the uh, winning attitude, Paul says. That's what will impact the world as, as nothing else will. They will know, Jesus said, you're my disciples if you love uh, one another. Now Paul goes uh, on in chapter 2 to tell us how that can be accomplished. It's hard to get along with one another. We we do rub each other the wrong way. We hurt one another's feelings. We say thoughtless things. We do uh, things to one another that that are, are difficult to, to deal with. So the question is, how, how can we get along? Paul first appeals to the, the wonderful incentive that's given to us in these opening Verses. It's the love of God. We ought to treat people the way God treats us. How does God treat us? Oh, he's wonderfully patient and tolerant, understanding. He cares even though we don't come through. He understands our failures. He encourages us. I use the illustration of a, of a basketball team, someone coming off the field and I thought this past week of an incident I saw and the Cowboys were playing and Tony Dorsett had just fumbled the ball and, and Dorsett came running off of the field and right away some, some big tackle grabbed him, gave him a big hug and said in effect, it's okay Tony, we'll, we'll get it next time. So, high five. Just caring about each other and encouraging one another. Well where do we get that kind of impetus? It comes from the love of God for us. We love one another. Because he first loved us. And then Paul introduces this, uh, this crazy, incredible notion that the way to get along is to be more concerned about other people's interests than we are our own. That's astonishing. To think of others before we think of ourselves. It's that, that's one aspect of, of humility. To be so absorbed in the, in the, in our thoughts for others that we don't think about ourselves. It's absolutely incredible. Paul's argument is really the same argument that James uses in James 4 when he says, where do, where does conflict come from? Why do we have wars, fightings, disagreements, arguments? He says, don't they come from passions that are at war in your members? And the word he uses for passions is the word from which we get our word uh, hedonist, sort of pleasures. Hedonist to someone who, who believes that pleasure is the highest good. So he or she pursues pleasure ruthlessly. James says that's what gums up relationships. We're all always seeking our own pleasure. 
We want what we want for ourselves. And, and here's this incredible turnaround that the grace of God gives us the capacity to think more about others' needs, to want to meet their needs to an even greater extent than our needs are met. Now, this, this doesn't mean that we're pushovers, that we're wimpy. Uh, we, you know, we don't set aside truth or principles just to meet someone's needs. Sometimes it may not be in their best interest to give them what they want. Certainly true of children. It can be true of adults. We want what's good and good for them. So we may have to deny them some, uh, some want, some desire that, that they have. Doesn't mean that we need to let people victimize us. Certainly, if someone has, uh, you know, if their pleasure is to batter me, I don't have to put up with that. You don't have to be abused verbally and, and emotionally and, and physically. No one has to put up with that. But what Paul is saying is that, is that we really need to be thinking in terms of other people's interests and needs. You sit down to plan your vacation and you want to go to the beach and your spouse wants to go to the mountains and, and you, you know, you get into these Donny Brooks that are so easy to get into and, and separate from one another when the real question is, what does that person really want? What are their interests? What are their needs? And how can I, within the bounds of reason, meet those needs and, and minister to, to their interests? Now that's such an incredible thought. Paul has to document it from the example of Jesus, who he says was in the form of God. He was God. No question about that. That's what we Christians call the incarnation. He was God. And yet when he came to earth, he set aside his prerogatives, his rights, his privileges of God. He didn't storm around and demand that everybody uh, pay attention to him and listen to him and meet his needs. He, his life was a constant pouring out of himself to others. His life was a constant dying to self-interest. And we say, well, that's wonderful, but he was God. He could do that. No, he didn't do that in his deity. He set aside the use of his deity in, in his humanity, and he was he acted as a man solely dependent upon God. He did it because he was... Relying upon the love of God for him. And, uh, and, and, and therefore, it's something that can be done. That's his argument. He's not appealing to Jesus as an impossible standard. He's saying this is the standard that ought to govern all of us. We ought to be thinking like the Lord thinks. That's what he means by the attitude, the mind, the mindset of Christ. This is the winning attitude, the desire to seek another person's interest, to think about what they need rather than constantly think about what we need and how we can be ministered to. And we, we say, well, if, if I do that, I'm going to miss out. Yeah, you, you, you might. You might. In this life. Okay? But not in the next. Th- that's when we get everything that's coming to us. Okay? We may not have the happiness we seek here. We may not have the pleasant circumstances we seek here. That's on a hit. Okay? And that's why Paul, uh, again, appeals to the example of Jesus. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, of the Father. He got everything that was coming to him. Okay? Reclaimed his glory uh, as we shall. Okay? As we shall. God will glorify us uh, in the end. 
Now, uh, in verse 12, he continues uh, his argument. And here, the emphasis is on the enabling of the Father. I'm in Philippians 2. I don't think I told you. Philippians 2, uh, 2, 12, 2 uh, 12. In this next section, he first will pick up the idea of, of enabling, how we're able to do what we're called to do, this giving up of ourself. Then uh, he will talk again about the effect of that attitude toward toward one another on on others. Paul repeats that idea over and over in the book. As Yogi Berra says, it's deja vu all over again. He just keeps saying the same thing uh, repeatedly. And then finally he gives us three wonderful examples of people who gave themselves away to others himself and Timothy, of whom Paul says, I, I, I don't have anybody like him who genuinely cares for your interests. And then Epaphroditus, this friend of Paul's who carried uh, the letter to Philippi, whom he says is a man to be truly honored because he's a, he's a servant. So the enablement of the Father, the effect upon others, and the example of, of three uh, individuals. Verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Continue to work out your own salvation. It's a scary phrase. If it's misunderstood, it sounds as though we have to work hard to be saved. That our destiny is all up to us, but that's not what Paul is saying. God loves us too much to ever let us go. We're secure. I Theologians state that truth in terms of what they call the perseverance of the saints. Those who are truly regenerated, those who have been born again, will persevere to the end. That's the explanation for, for these verses that sometimes seem to appeal to our will and other times seem to appeal to God's sovereignty. The point seems to be that, that if we're truly God's, he will see to it that our, our faith endures, that we remain to the end, that we will not apostatize. If you're truly his, you don't need to fear that you're going to lose your salvation. You will not Though we are faithless, he abides faithful, for he cannot deny his own. He loves you too much to give up on you. I want you to understand that. So what is Paul saying when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and and trembling? Well, let me explain that term salvation. It occurs in, in four different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes salvation is used to speak of of deliverance, and by the way, the word salvation essentially means deliverance. It, sometimes it's used to refer to our deliverance from the penalty of sin, its guilt, its shame, its condemnation. We're saved from sin in that sense. There's no condemnation, Paul says, for those that are in Christ Jesus. So we're saved from the penalty of sin. We're also saved from the presence of sin. One of these days we're going to be taken out of this uh, wretched, sinful world and we're going to live in a sinless environment. Peter says in his uh, opening chapter of his first epistle, First Peter, 
He says, we are guarded through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times, like a Christmas gift that's been put up in the garage and, and promised. And, and you can't get it until Christmas rolls around. And that's what he's saying about our salvation. It's, it, our destiny is fixed. Heaven is our home. We're maybe over the hill, but you're headed for home. That's a sure thing. So we're delivered from the presence of sin yet to be. Sometimes the New Testament refers to deliverance in a purely physical sense. Paul says, for example, when the ship was about to break up, he was on a ship on the way to Malta and it was about to break up. He said to the people, don't don't worry, we're all going to be safe. God had appeared to him in a in a dream and revealed that they would they'd be they wouldn't drown, they wouldn't die. So we're all going to be saved. Well, sometimes the term simply means that a physical deliverance. Sometimes salvation is used in the sense of deliverance from the power of sin. That's this process we call sanctification. The over the course of our life work that God is doing in us to increasingly deliver us from our sin from our tendency to gossip, stab people in the back, slander them. Uh, He's delivering us from our lust, our our greed, our materialism, our impatience, our intolerance, our jealousy, our envy, our hypersensitivity, our prejudice. See, this is what uh, the Song of Solomon calls the little foxes that, that destroy the grapes, these little attitudes, some of them attitudes of the spirit, just irritability and crankiness and defensiveness, the things that that separate us from one another. It's that salvation that Paul is talking about here. He's saying, work out your salvation. He's work out the, these, the, these areas of your life that tend to separate you from God and and separate you from one another. Because, because God is at work to deliver us. Uh, George MacDonald had this to say. He, God would have us rid of all discontent, all fear, all grudging, all bitterness in word or thought. All gauging and measuring of ourselves with a different standard from that which we apply to another. He would have no curling of the lip. No desire to excel another. No contentment at gaining by another's loss. He would not have us receive the smallest service with ingratitude. Would not hear from us a tone to jar the heart of another. A word to make it ache. Be the ache ever so transient. From such as from all other sins, Jesus was born uh, to deliver us. That's what Paul's talking about. Work out your salvation in the sense that uh, you begin to to deal with those those issues in your life that uh, you find disgusting, difficult, and others find hard to to live with. But there's a little proviso here. Paul says, "Do it with fear and trembling." What does he mean? Well, sense of the weakness of our flesh, sense of the the ways of the world and and, and the way it impacts us seduces us into sin, an awareness of the wiliness of the devil, uh, just aware of how weak we are, how prone we are to fall. 
It's not a matter of, of gritting our teeth and clenching our fists and setting our jaw and deciding that, that we're going to do better. Because we're weak and frail, and even though the spirit may be willing, the, the flesh is is terribly weak. We're not we're not good. When Paul says we're weak in him, that's not a, a pious platitude. You know, that that's an absolute certainty. We are weak, frail, transient, sinful disgustingly ugly people. We are not good. Jesus said there's no one good but God. We all fail. So work it out, Paul says, with with fear and trembling because God is at work, tirelessly at work in us. It's his work. It's his work, not ours. We have a uh, have a son who was when he was much younger ADHD and everything was so hard for him. School was hard, life was hard, the world was hard. It's a hard place to grow up in. And uh, we we tried everything in the world. We tried to get all the help to him that we could. He couldn't read well. He, he struggled all through school. And I remember one day walking by his, uh, we used to put him at the kitchen table because we, we tried to watch him while he was studying and trying to be available to help. And, and I looked around his chair and it looked, looked like it was snowing paper balls. There were, he'd been wadding up one paper after another and throwing it on the floor. And he'd try again. Couldn't get it right. Wad it up. Throw it on the floor. He'd try again. Wad it up, throw it on the floor. And I did what you would do. I just sat down with him and I said, okay, let's work it out together. Now that's the response that God makes to us. You know, we, we look at our defensiveness and our irritability and you know, the biases that we've brought into our world because of our dysfunctional families or for whatever reason. And we say, I'm going to set that right this, this week. I'm not going to act that way toward others. And we do. And we wad it up. Say, I can't do it. can't do it. And, and here's where Paul's word is so significant. He says, you work it out with fear and trembling, with a proper sense of your own inadequacy. But I want you to know this. God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's involved in the process with you. He indwells you. He's your strength. He's your power. He's on the job. And you notice how Paul puts it? He is in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The will is the secret component. It's the choices that we make that no one sees. To do is, is to act. You know, we, we, we have to choose here, and then we, we act with our body. And, and what Paul is saying is that God is involved in both of, of those components, both the, the choosing, the willing, the mental part of it, the unseen secret uh, aspects of our behavior, and the activity, the working out of these secret choices, hidden choices that we make. Have you ever decided, I just can't do it anymore, I don't even want to try? Sure you have. We all have. That's all right. That's a, that's a, that's a purely human, normal response. I don't even want to try anymore. 
Sometimes that happens because of our own inadequacy. Sometimes it happens because our love is unrequited. Unrequited people don't don't respond, and we just say, I don't even want to try anymore. He's in you to will of his good pleasure. All you can do is say, Lord, help me. Help me. Help me to want to love that person. Help me to want to forgive that person. Help me to want to try to reconnect and reestablish that relationship that's that's broken. He's in us, in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then Paul answers for us the, the oldest question of all. Why does God bother? Why does he care? Why does he mess with us? As the old hymn writer put it, Jesus, what did you find in me that you should act so lovingly? It's because he delights in you. Because of his good pleasure. He likes you. It pleasures him to do things for you. It tickles him to death when you begin to depend on him and he has a chance to begin to move into your life and character and behavior and make you the kind of person that, that you long to be. He loves us because He loves us. There's no other answer. He does what He does because of His good pleasure. So work it out, Paul says. Work it out. Don't give up. Don't quit. Work it out. F.B. Meyer says he may be working in you to confess to that fellow Christian that you were unkind in your speech or act. Work it out. He may be working in you to give up that line of business about which you have been doubtful lately. Work it out. He may be working in you to be sweeter in your home and gentler in your speech. Work it out. He may be working in you to alter your relations with some with whom you have dealings that are not as they should be. Work it out. This very day, let God begin to speak and work and will and then work out what he works in. God will not work apart from you. He wants to work through you. Let him yield to him. And let this be the day when you begin to live in the power of the mighty indwelling one. Work it out. Work it out. Work it out, because he's working it in. He will not leave you or forsake you. You have the power of the universe at your disposal. Now, uh, Paul moves on in verse 14. Do not do everything, he says, without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Complaining is the outspoken part of criticism. Uh, the word that's used in the New, New International Version, arguing, actually has to do with inward grumbling. Both describe a captious, critical uh, fault-finding nature. One is the outward aspects of it. It tends to criticize verbally, orally. 
The other has to do with the inward attitude of just grumbling and complaining within. Paul says, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Because a critical spirit is so disruptive of relationships, and it does neutralize our witness to the world, we don't realize what an impact a critical spirit has on a relation. Even if we don't say anything, it separates us from that other, other person. Instead of being tolerant, accepting, understanding, loving, we separate ourselves within our hearts. And even though we don't say anything, we, we withdraw. Other people begin to sense that something is wrong. And, and they with, they withdraw. Occurred to me as I was looking to this passage this week is that, uh, criticism is the arch sin of the devil. That's what he does all the time. He criticizes us to God. And he sees me sin and he, and, 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 and he, and he appears before the presence of God. He says, did you see what DR did? Did you see what that slime ball did? Do, do you understand what, what a wretched creature he is? See, that, 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 that's the heart of the devil. He wants to put us down. He wants to, he wants, to, he, he's our, our, our critic. He's always critiquing our behavior. So Paul says, don't, don't do that. Out of all the possible permutations of self-interest, that's the one that, that does more to separate us from one another than any other is that intolerant, critical, harsh, judgmental spirit, judging one another for our actions, not understanding our hearts, but judging one's, uh, another, another person's, uh, motives. Paul says, don't do that. The, the opposite to, is, is to be forgiving and acceptant and understanding and, and tolerant. He says, if you do that, you'll be like a thousand points of light in this dark, twisted, perverted generation in which we live. You will be so extraordinary, people will not be able to get their eyes off of you or, or get you out of their mind. Remember that old uh, perfume advertisement, swin, uh, wind song? Wind song sticks in your mind, you know. You'll be so fragrant. There'll be such an aura uh, of sweetness about you that people won't be able to, to get you out of their minds. So you'll be like like a light in the midst of a dark and perverted place. You know what it's like in your workplace. You know how what people spend their time doing. They gather around a water cooler or whatever and they just deride one another and they talk about one another. And We know why we do that. We do it so we'll feel better about ourselves, but goes on and on and on and it tends to enter right into it. And it's especially vicious when it's toward other Christians. So unkind to each other. And the message we send to the world is the message that we do not want sent. See, God ought to be at work in our hearts in a way that, that enables us to behave in inexplicable ways. We ought, we, you know, we ought to be an oddment in the world. People ought to puzzle over us. They, they ought to look at our lives and say, you know, I, that person is inex- how, how can you explain his behavior? As Jesus said to his disciples, what do you do more than the Pharisees? In other words, our righteousness ought to be not just rigorous and stiff righteousness, but a, a gentle, tolerant, loving, kindly uh, behavior that, that, that people just can't explain.
in terms of our personalities or our education or our background or anything about us. Remember the story in, in the, the plague story in Exodus? The, um, the, the priests, the Egyptian priests were able to duplicate some of Moses' miracles. But finally they, uh, Moses did something they couldn't explain. And they couldn't do. They couldn't duplicate it. Remember what they said to the Pharaoh? This is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. People ought to be able to say that about us. And they see our, our gentle character and they see our, our love for one another and they see our willingness, our sturdy, steadfast faith in the midst of opposition and, and they realize that there's something different about us that they can't explain naturally. They say, this is the finger of God. That's what Paul means when he says, be, be light. Be light in the midst of this dark, dismal world in which we live. Holding out the word of life. I don't have time to elaborate on this. I'll pick it up next week. But Paul is saying it's not enough to be. We have to tell people why we're the way we are. Otherwise, they just they might look at us and say, well, that's just a wonderfully integrated person. But... We need to tell people the secret of our success in terms of our of our character, our behavior. Now we have a communion service this morning, and I don't have time to move on to, into these examples. We'll talk about them uh, next week, but uh, I want to ask the men to begin to prepare and to come to the front, and we're going to serve the uh, these elements. But as we do so, I'd like to have us fix our minds on what actually happened on the cross. As, as Paul said, he who was in the form of God did not think it a thing to be grasped, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Stripped himself of his majesty as God. And, uh, made himself a man, and being found in fashion as a man, he became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. The cross was just the culmination of a whole lifetime of dying. Paul says that, that we ought to have the same we ought to have the same thought. Give ourselves to a lifetime of dying. Right? A willingness to give up our rights, our privileges, our interests, our dreams, our opinions in order to meet the needs of others. Because that's what our Lord did for us. I'll ask the men to come forward, men and women. And let's bow our heads and hearts and prepare ourselves for this time of worship. What a wonderful example, Lord, we have in the in your willingness to submit to humiliation and shame and uh, the rigors, stress of life to, uh, to go through everything that we have to, to go through, to have to face every difficult personality, to have to live with, with men and women that were hard to get along with, who, who did not treat him with respect, who did not give him uh, the honor that was that was due, um, who did not think of his needs, who even in the garden as he was crying out uh, for support and encouragement, 
who went to sleep, who really didn't care. And yet to continue to respond in, with grace and love and forgiveness and understanding. We would like to be like that. We want to work that into our character. But we pray that prayer with, um, with fear and trembling because we know how inclined we are to fail. So we would ask that you would, would begin even now to work it into us, to make it, to make what we know real in our lives. And as we celebrate this time, as we worship together around the cross, gather at your feet and see again the sacrifice that you made for us, that we would, would understand something of this winning attitude. We ask in Jesus' name.